0: Sports fans, do not miss our live post-game show coming up tonight, December fourteenth. Immediately after the Celtics-Spurs game, it's a slightly earlier start time for the late game. So stay up with us and ask your questions using hashtag B-Ball Show, and Dave Dufour, and I will answer them. And don't forget, Dave and I have a weekly mailbag podcast every Friday. You in? What is the proper way to train young athletes? How does your grip relate to strength training? Does no pain, no gain even make sense anymore? The only question left is say it with me, you win. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to bring on the show today Leland Redfield, who is a strength and conditioning coach and focuses on younger athletes. And uh, he has a really interesting take on a lot of different ways to train. And I wanted to bring him on to talk about a lot of those things. So Leland, thanks for joining us today. And um, you know, let's 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 get into it. Let's talk about you know some of your philosophies about conditioning and strength training for younger athletes.
1: Sure. So, right off the bat, most of the stuff that uh, I recommend for my young players, um, when I say young athletes, it's usually pre-puberty. So, it's before kids have really hit puberty, before they've hit their growth spurts. Um, And the biggest thing that I focus on, at least at the young ages, is grip core, grip strength, excuse me, and core strength. Um, And the guy who I follow, his name's Pavel Tatsulin. he's been... uh, He's a a Russian military strength training expert, and he's worked with top athletes. Uh, He says, when in doubt, train your grip and your core. Um, And the reason you want to do that is as you tighten your grip muscles, there's a phenomenon, he calls it irradiation, where the surrounding tension of a muscle spills over into those other muscles. So just by training your grip, if you take a really, really tight fist and then you tighten it twice as hard you can actually feel that tension go up all the way through your shoulder and through your back. So if you work on getting a really strong grip, that strength will literally irradiate all the way over your back to your shoulder muscles. Um, Your grip muscles have such a big representation in your nervous system that in terms of just ROI, if you know how to train your grip really well, that's those basketball players who are long and skinny that are wiry, that are strong, They don't have muscle um, as much as some of the other people, but they rely on their nervous system for strength. Um, So just by training your grip, you can literally turn the volume up on all of the other muscles. The core is the same way. The core is basically like a speaker that amplifies all of the volume or all of the strength in your nervous system. So if you're dealing with contact um, and you have a tight core, you can actually not get knocked off balance and get an and one where if you can't maintain tension in your core all of that energy or all that strength or all that tension gets leaked out when you take contact you lose it you lose balance you lose control um so just for young kids a lot of the things that i focus on is is very no weights grip and core um you don't really need to weights are sort of the the modality of of the of what strength is strength is tension it's not lifting weights it's just it's being able to cultivate tension in your in your nervous system
0: I mean, in two minutes, you've already kind of blown us all away as far as I'm concerned because I've never heard of anybody talking about grip as a place to start for strength training. And I love the idea, especially the way you described it, because you're right, it does radiate across so many other muscle groups. And you know a lot of times parents are wary of getting into weights. They think it stunts kids' growth, which uh, I've had to argue to the nth degree that it, there isn't any study that really shows that that happens. But, uh, I certainly think that there's issues when you see guys who overtrain and, like, their shoulders are too big, for instance. It's harder to be a good shooter that way. And, obviously, shooting is a big thing for almost every position at this point That or every position that you'd want to, you know, stay out of the way of, of, of overtraining certain muscles. And, um, and so I think a lot of times what we end up fo- fighting against is – Uh, a a 90s mindset or an 80s mindset of how we should train primarily because it's when the coaches who are now in their 30s and 40s learned it, right? And so it's like this sort of dogma attached to how you're supposed to do it. Um, One thing I wanted to point out, though, is I've often said that most of the sports that we play in America, um, the wrist... Seems to play a really important part in playing. If it's basketball, if it's golf, if it's baseball, uh, tennis, the wrist strength ends up being something that ends, up, you know, is really important and also very overlooked. And I almost feel like what you're talking about with grip strength speaks to that as well.
1: It, it, I, it personally, I've had cysts in my wrist growing up. So, and as a basketball player, if your wrist gets hurt, you know, what are you going to do? You can't shoot the ball. You can't do any of that. So. Um, It also, it trains your whole nervous system to work together and a lot of times when people are doing training, um, because they train in isolation that you work certain muscles but you don't tie everything together, Mm -hmm. that the wrist doesn't get tied to the bicep, doesn't get tied to the back, and through that there's these leakages where a lot of basketball players can't do normal push-ups. Their wrists don't bend that way, they're not flexible enough, um, and especially with basketball, just because I mean we're pounding a basketball all the time, your forearms get so incredibly tight, they're cordy. Um, it makes sense that there's a lot of wrist injuries in basketball, and that's. And strength is one of those things that prevents injury if you do it right. But if you do it wrong, I mean you're risking your whole career. You can you know screw up your wrist. There's all these all these negative sides to. To doing it wrong and that's one of the things you're talking about with the 90s mindset is overtraining um, Yeah, it's I mean Pavel specifically, but most people he is a rule of five never do more than five reps and And he's like anything more than five reps is bodybuilding It's not strength training and basketball players specifically want to focus on strength to weight ratio we don't want to go look in the mirror and everybody wants to look in the mirror and be really sexy but that's not why we're in the weight room. We're in the weight room to get a competitive advantage on the basketball court. And the idea of working out is, the word working out's not even a word in the Russian language. It's training session or a lesson. And we, at the 90's mindset is how can you go to the gym and kick your butt as much as possible, you know, so you're sore, so you can't lift your arms, so you, and we mistakenly think that that gives us a better competitive advantage tomorrow or makes us stronger tomorrow, and it doesn't. It actually is the complete opposite. The No pain, no gain is just <laughs> a lie. Um, people don't, and I'm guilty as, you know, when I was training growing up, it was, how can I work as hard as possible? And a young player that understands these concepts correctly, that you should feel stronger when you're done strength training than when you started. Um, yeah. That's. I mean, that's the mindset, yeah.
0: And I think you should feel refreshed. You almost should walk out of there feeling lighter than you were, like walking a little bit lighter on air almost. And I feel like uh, I remember one of the guys that I work with in LA who trains a lot of NBA guys. You know, he, I'd be coming in, I'd walk in there and I'd see these NBA players, these big guys, and they're just kind of they're deadlifting, you know, maybe like 10 pounds on each side of the bar, you know. And like, I remember people like scoffing at that. And I was like, no, he's working on explosion and balance and, and, and what you're talking about as far as core uh, and meaningful reps. And so, um, which is another question because I feel like sometimes we talk about explosion. And I've seen both things trained where you want to have like a big burst, let's say, for doing uh, any kind of action. And I've also seen people say, no, you want to do it slow and smooth the whole way through, whatever, whatever it is you're doing. And what do you, what's your take on, on that method? Or are, are there more than one way to do that? Um,
1: so for explosion, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the one arm kettlebell snatch. Um, that, I think that exercise specifically is built to train explosive athletes. Um, there's benefits to both. So I, I'm a big, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about the 90s method. But another thing with the 90s method is uh, people want to go do 20 different exercises in the gym. Right, And you really only need three or four core ones. People in the NBA are going to do 20 different exercises because they have the time, they're professional athletes. They need that top 1% of every little detail in order to perform at that level. But your average youth player or your average high school player should pick you know, the three or four exercises that are going to provide them the highest return on the basketball court. Um, for explosions, I like the kettlebell snatch. That's a little bit More advanced. I mean, that's a a high school type. um, Anytime you're with a kettlebell, Um, but the the kettlebell swing uh, for young athletes is. Pavel says that that's more effective than 99.9% of all strength training. Not sure if you're familiar with the kettlebell swing at all. I,
0: I am. We should probably describe it really quickly for people who are listening just so they have an idea. So, the kettlebell is, is basically a, a, a metal or a, you know, a weighted. A
1: cannonball with a handle.
0: Good. A cannonball with a handle. It's a great description. And this, where, where are you swinging it when you're talking about the swing?
1: Yeah, so you, you put the kettlebell down on the ground in between your legs, and then you grab it, and then you, you sit back, and then you stand up. And the motion is basically standing up and sitting, but the kettlebell swings. Um, in the in the down position, when the kettlebell's swinging down, you're bracing your whole body. That moment of brace is that tension, and that's when you're firing your whole nervous system and getting ready to explode and move like a cat. Or um, that's where you're gonna get all of your athletic benefits. People look at it and they think that you get the benefits from bringing the kettlebell up, and it's not, the benefits <laughs> all come from that little second when your whole body's bracing, your whole body's engaged, um, and it comes from the hips and the glutes and the core. Um, but it's also it's effective because uh, Pavel says isolation is a myth. So if you're doing bicep curls, mm-hmm, you're only mm-hmm. training your bicep, but the kettlebell is going to train the whole body to work as one. Which on a basketball court, if you're get like isolation isn't even something that's worth your time in the weight room. Um, it doesn't provide any, any real, I mean, if you're going to spend an hour doing exercises, you need to do things that are whole body, um, that will correlate to a better athletic performance, not a bigger bicep. Mm -hmm. Um, and the kettlebell swing, he says, and again, he's this elite military expert who most people should listen to if you're going to focus on strength training, uh, is more effective than anything else. And just for learning to explode, I think a lot of athletes, especially young athletes, don't have the right um, neurons firing in the right ways at the right sequence, the right timing in order to be athletic. Um, and that's one of the things that kettlebell does is it it le- it teaches everything to fire in sequence uh, together. It teaches the whole body to move and operate as one athletic unit, um, more so than any other exercise. Uh, he,
0: he, for sure. You know, it's funny. I got to go to P3, which is that place in Santa Barbara that has all the wires that they, they attach you and they shoot you in slow motion and they had you jump off the stuff. And, uh, and I still have to actually edit that. I think I'm embarrassed. I haven't edited it yet. I've had it for over a year because it, it's me doing it. And I don't want anyone to see me being a really last athlete. But uh, the one thing I took away from that or one of the many things I did was the the sequence of firing that goes into the jumping, for instance. And, like, what I was doing as a guy who is now 40, doesn't really play anymore, was, you know, like, for instance, and, I, and we see this and I'll make the connection in the NBA, where I was coming up out of my – um, crouch to jump, way before my legs were starting to ext- uh, extend into the jump. So it's like a two-part jump. I'm like coming up and then and then extending my legs, and they would show me in slow motion how I'm dissipating almost all of my energy that way. Yep. you wouldn't believe it, but I see the some NBA players doing that. Like Carl Anthony Towns, for instance, is does the same thing, and it's it's weird. It takes one to know one, and the thing is, he's so long and so tall that he can still get his you know the middle of his uh, forearm above the rim. But like I'm convinced that if someone were to train him properly, he could he might be able to touch the top of the backboard <laughs> the way he can oh. if he did it right.
1: Yeah, well, strength is a skill, jumping is a skill. People associate it with a natural talent, you know? But, but the sequence of firing neurons is a skill. Strength is a skill, and jumping is timing and sequence. And you can practice it, and you can get a lot better than you are. And, and you've seen some of the most advanced stuff ever. You've learned that my, I'm not timing my jump right. It's Like my biomechanics are off. Like that's mm-hmm. that's all it is. So if you learn to time better, you can jump higher. Um, you can do all these other things, and the kettlebell swing is one of those things that really condenses all of that motion and timing into one very potent exercise.
0: Yeah, and it's also what you said about you know jumping is a skill, uh, running is a skill, and running. I think yeah. the one of the biggest things that the country has failed us in in the educational system is teaching our kids. How to properly run. And I know as a basketball coach, up until up until recently, when I've really talked to enough people and wrapped my head around it a little bit better, uh, I would see kids who, you know, there's something wrong with their way they're running. It doesn't look right, but I don't I had to shrug and like, I don't know, and maybe it's just natural or whatever. But now you were starting to realize that you can train the proper technique of running and planting, and you can you could take kids who are not like athletes. And give them forty percent more, you know, uh, 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 production from their, from you know, from their athletic ability, and and they maybe level the playing field. Suddenly, they're not just going to get out athleticism by other kids who are better.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the so one of my favorite coaches is a coach named Barry Ross, who he he owns almost every owns owns. Uh, he's trained people who own these records, but he's a world class sprinting coach, and. They've found this correlation between your top sprinting speed and the distance that you can walk over 15 minutes. So rather than training your top sprinting speed, what they're doing is they're training these Olympic athletes to speed walk for 15 minutes and to build that distance up over time. So, but what's crazy about this, right? So you hop on a treadmill and you start speed walking and over time, the first thing you'll notice is that your feet are weak. And as you're getting it, as you're getting worn down, you're gonna feel your feet muscles get really tired. Your your shins are gonna have to be like arched because you have to have your your foot locked. You know, uh, you had the guy on a while back about the hy- a hyper arch mechanism. Yeah. This this protocol serves that function in a way because when you're walking on a treadmill, you have to have your arch, you have to have your foot engage. Right. But so as you're speed walking over time, you develop these muscles these Muscles in your feet, and then all of the walking muscles are the muscles to be athletic. Like people misunderstand that they think you need to run fast, but you run using your walking muscles. So, if you strengthen your walking muscles, if you hop on a treadmill for 15 minutes and go as fast as you can, not fast, but as fast as you can walking, um, you will do more for your top sprinting speed and your athleticism than you could do running up and down and doing all this other stuff. And it's low impact, it's gonna. All Olympic athletes have a, a badass walk. Um, if you watch them, they've all got a strut. That's all developed because their muscles that they walk with are just, they've worked the right muscles the right way. Um, and the way you can do that, the way you can replicate it, is by hopping on a treadmill and speed walking.
0: You know it's um, funny cuz I'm doing PT for my hips now and they have a treadmill that let you can walk uh with 50% of your weight or 60 or, or 80% of your weight so you you're barely you know you're almost you know you're running really like sort of in a in a vacuum and they had me do it, and it, I tell you, when you get off of that, it also is a total different alignment to how you're, you know, how you probably. I, I, I'd imagine if you take fifty percent of your weight off and you start walking, you probably get closer to what your optimal gait should be, right? And, and move yeah. better. And uh, I can't get over how weird it feels after I get off of that, just from even light jogging or, or, or walking. Um, And then, you know, just to to reference what you were talking about with the hyper arch mechanism with Chung, and you have to have him come back on the show too, he talked about curling your toes and and found the discovery between if you were to curl your toes and essentially like grip the ground with your toes, that will then uh, cause the arch uh, of your foot to be uh, flexed and strong and you're almost bouncing off the ground. And then what he says is he knows it's working with his clients is when they come back after the first day or two and their shins are like are just horribly sore. Like they, these are muscles they've never worked before yep. and yep. they're suddenly engaging them correctly. And I've seen the results. It is amazing. Um, and you're then, then you're landing on the ball of your foot more than the heel. I think that's also one of the big keys, isn't it?
1: Yeah, So there's a couple of things in, in my opinion. Um, all of the stuff you said, absolutely. But as you practice that, you actually get stronger. And just like a kettlebell swing or just like weak, if you have weak feet, you leak tension throughout your feet. And that leak tension doesn't – it's strength that should go up your leg and help you jump or help you be more athletic. But if your foot's weak or you have some leakages in your energy in your foot, then of course you can't jump high. Of course you can't run fast because your foot's – you're running on a jello – wobbly, like, stilts, basically. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny because we even see so – I study feet a lot because of the shooting. And, you know, even a guy like um, Durant is interesting to me. I'm kind of curious your thoughts is – and someone told me about this, and I've seen it a little bit, but I haven't been able to – you know, we don't get enough wide shots of just, like, where you can see the feet all the way through the shot. But Durant, it looks to me, most of the time will roll from his heels to his toes into the jump. It's bizarre and almost like it's not a great balance because you're, you're almost on your heels to start with. But I'm curious if you have any thoughts to if that's what he's really doing. Is there some interesting connection between like energy transfer and, and rolling onto your balls like that? Um, So for Durant, I don't know. When you look at Curry, I can talk
1: to you a little bit about, about his. Like Curry has refined – if you look at just energy, the body – Producing energy to shoot curry has refined that so much that there's no leakages in his shot Durant um, He he looks to me. He's a he's a back foot shooter. Um, He doesn't jump and balance off two feet He's very much his his opposite foot. I mean he'll land on his left most. I think it's his left, right? Mm -hmm. He does a a traditional rock lands on his left. He He can afford leakages because he's so tall you know, Steph Curry has no room for any leakages whatsoever. So he's refined everything so much to the point where um, if you look at him, if you just look at his shot, there's no wasted energy whatsoever. Um, Durant, Durant, Durant's a tough animal to, like, dissect because he's just so long and so athletic and so, just so long and so athletic. That, uh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and by the way, I think a guy like Curry or even Harden, well, Harden's a little taller, but Curry is probably a good example because here's a guy who most people can aspire to physically. uh, And aside from the fact that he might have, you know, uh, better hand-eye coordination than a lot of other people, um, I'm convinced that you could, what he has done is recreatable uh, for a lot of different people uh, of different sizes and shapes. Um, And the one thing we've noticed about him, and it's a really big one that I got from his trainer, Brandon Payne, is uh, Their big, uh, his saying is nose behind your toes, and what I love about that is because you watch Curry. Now there are times when he will get low and sort of a head out in front of his of his of his uh, knees to kind of get by the guy, but generally when you're watching him push the ball down the court, uh, you'll see that his, his nose do stay, stays his nose stays behind his toes, and that position. Um, I think another '90s, '80s mentality is: is no, you got to lean forward and you have to go, and what you get is someone like me when I played, which was out of control. I'd fall down a whole lot. I'd turn the ball over trying to like go too fast. And I think that if you can, you know, again, we're talking about training kids how to run. And I think that that nose behind your toes would also decrease turnovers and, and charges uh, significantly if we could get more of those kids who are trying basically too hard, right, to, to find that optimal position to get them the most balance.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the things, too, with, with Curry and with just – it's totally, rep- I mean, you can replicate what he's done. Even his eye movements, like, have you ever heard of the Bates Method? No. Okay, so, um, there's a great book called uh, Take Your Glasses Off and See, and the whole idea is that, that we have, the reason that we have glasses, or the reason is that our eye, the most active muscle in your body is the thing that basically takes the light in, and, and tells you what you're seeing, basically. Um, one of the reasons why meditation is such a big thing. If you close your eyes, you can do all sorts of things. But that's a muscle. So the Bates method basically teaches you how to how to you you sit back like this and you look at your thumbs and you can rotate and you focus on your thumbs, but you pay attention to the peripherals. Okay. And just like anything else, you can build a skill where you get better at noticing your peripherals. You get better at at eye movement. So when you see a Steph Curry come off a screen, find the find the basket really quickly and shoot it, like That all starts with his eyes being able to find the target first, right? And then the biomechanics kick in. It's this, it should all be on autopilot, but it can't go on autopilot until you see your target first, right? Yeah. So, if you can become more skilled, and you've seen Steph Curry's ball handling stuff with all the lights on the wall, and one light walks up, then he's working on his peripherals. Like, that stuff that's practiced, that he practices, that he gets better at, it's not a God-given talent. It's a skill that you can develop by practicing. The Bates method is, is a great um, modality for it, but you can work on your peripherals. And then as you shoot, if you put a little bit of time into this, I used to teach my kids, uh, because I'm a, I hate long twos, like I, we're, go shoot a three. Like Threes are better shots for you. I think threes are easy if you teach them to shoot them right. Um, I would teach my kids to go stand at the three-point line and then line up their thumbs with the target on the basket that they would want, and then move side to side, because then they're training their eyes to operate at the level of the basket rather than like down here or any place on the basketball court, right? Mm -hmm, There's a specific place to look. And this is why I think Chris Paul or some of these point guards might have a hard time shooting. They just don't spend that much time looking at the rim. I mean, they're looking elsewhere. They're trying to pass. They find it late, and then they shoot it late, where a lot of shooters are catching the ball and they know they're going to shoot in advance and their eyes are already going to where they need to be and then their biomechanics follow automatically.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny about that really quickly because I was working with a kid who's, who's training and, you know, wants to shot the NBA and, uh, you, know, he's, you know, he's 6'9", long, he's a, you know, and he's actually a really good shooter. But what I was noticing is on his catch, Uh, and this is sort of parenthetical, but I'll throw it out there. Uh, I noticed on his catch that, uh, you know, he was reaching his arms all the way out and then having to bring the ball back in and then go up into his shot, which sort of speaks to the notion of when you're, you're, you know, what you're basically saying is they're ready quicker, right? Their eyes are already in the rim quicker than most so that they can lock in and shoot it. And I noticed that Steph, this is what I got from Steph, was he almost, he doesn't bring his arms out to catch the ball. He catches it in the pocket already to go. And when I gave this guy, you know, that little tweak, you know, all I could tell you is that it just looked better. It's all, everything was just smoother and, and worked better, you know, and, and you can just see it when you, when you know it when you see it. And I almost feel like that also speaks to it. And perhaps it, it, it speaks to, um, you know, a position of strength where the farther your arms are out, the weaker you are, I guess, right? And then when you have, you know, your arms bent in the ball and your hands here, you're a lot stronger and, and have more solid base and balance.
1: Yeah, well, you're, you're pulling yourself off balance to reach for the ball. Right, mm-hmm. and it's quicker because once you catch it then you've got to bring it back which takes time then you've got to get rebalanced where you know Curry or even Clay Thompson their hands are in their pocket yeah um, they're catching and shooting they're not reaching for it all of that you don't you have microseconds in the NBA you can't afford to be reaching for for passes the other thing that's kind of interesting about shooting is that coaches have a hard time they say like get your elbow in I know you don't agree with that I don't really agree with that necessarily either but coaches have a hard time, teaching players how to use what muscles when they shoot like they don't like it's really kind of a challenging thing to tell a kid to you know activate these muscles don't activate these muscles um one of the things that i've helped with with my kids that i don't know if you would like this or not but i have my kids because you know the shot line right you're familiar with the shot line that's a pretty general shooting the ball straight right, there's a line that you shoot the ball straight. Um, I have my kids pinch their hands together like this, and then work on going up the shot line and then finishing without a ball, because just by engaging these muscles all around here, then when you get the ball, you you have a sensitivity to the midline or to your shot line, where when you grab it, you know what muscles, because you want to be squeezing the midline, because that will help you shoot the ball straight. If you watch Steph Curry when he finishes, both of his hands go together. He pinches the midline. Oh, okay. The, the principle for shooting is is a midline, right? So everything goes towards the midline and then closes, and that's how you know that you're going to shoot straight. Coaches think that it's balance, right? So they think that you're shooting up and the ball needs to rest and be balanced on your hand. That's not what is actually going on with these really high-level shooters. The, there's tension in their hands, and if you have them squeeze the ball or squeeze their hands like – and work on going perfectly straight up, when they grab the ball, they can have those same muscles engaged and go perfectly straight up. And nerve cells that fire together wire together. So when you practice going perfectly straight up, that becomes the new normal. Whereas if if you don't practice going, or if you don't work on firing those neurons, then you don't know what neurons to fire to be a consistent shooter. And
0: I think the key here is you need to practice firing those neurons without a ball. And with yeah. repetition, because if you're going to wait for a ball, you're never going to get enough repetitions to do the muscle memory or whatever. You, uh, maybe we can't even use muscle memory anymore. But, right, the neurons can't learn without reps and the meaningful reps that are done. So I, I've noticed that, like, I think people have gone away from, you know, John Wooden used to practice stuff without a ball. He would have you jump in the air and shoot, right, and have you do all these things. And I think we've gone away from that. But I, I've seen some really great results from old school guys who literally just get them back to the basics of, you know, of miming the moves and you get a lot more repetition. You can see it clearly. Uh, the one thing is, for the people who can't see this, it's an audio podcast, is that the midline you're talking about and bringing the ball up, you're bringing the ball up sort of in right and down the center of your body, which I think is an interesting discussion because uh, I, I would say most shooters bring the ball up on their shooting side a little bit, and that's why we talk about the turn to get that alignment. However, yep. there are a few guys that actually do shoot it like from the middle of their body. So, uh, I mean, what's your take on that?
1: Yeah, not... Okay, so I, I like to teach principles instead of habits. So a habit is going to be bring the ball to the middle of your body or bring the ball to this plot. A principle is going to be shoot the ball straight, right? Okay. So some person might you know be more comfortable on the right side of their body. Some people might be on – I generally think of the little L on your hand it should go right up your nose or right up your eye. But that's generally the best body mechanics is that if you think of a straight line – I'm a lefty, so – so, yeah, I think about it just going straight up there. Um, that doesn't matter to me if my players can finish perfectly. Because okay. if you frame okay. the basket at the end, I'm a big fan of biomechanics. So when I teach kids shooting, I always start at the end where, hey, when you're done shooting, how, are you, how is it going to feel in your body? Both your arms are going to be fully extended. Your shooting fingers are going to be down on the shot line. Your, your weak hand's going to be framing the basket I get kids to embody the finish first without the ball. I'll have them stand there for like a minute until their arms are on fire just so they know when they shoot and they finish the ball, here's how they should feel when they're done.
0: Well, um, let me ask you about that because when I've worked with young kids, you know, seven, eight, nine, what I've noticed I, I feel like is – the, one of the harder things for them to master is the timing of straightening the arm and flicking the wrist at the same time. I think – I feel like I've seen that. I would need like their hyper slow-mo to see it. But it looks to me like that's the thing that they end up having to work on a lot is to figure out how to get that you know, all-in-one motion where it's all smooth. Do, have you seen that as well?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, the younger kids definitely are um, – you need, you need to have a certain level of strength. In order to shoot the ball. Um, But what I've found in terms of timing is I like to, I've tweaked it a little bit, but I like to teach the elbows um, and your toes, uh, I call it breaking at the same time. So there's a bunch of skills that I teach, but one of them is that your elbows should um, should be locked, essentially. You get the ball and your elbows are frozen until they're not frozen and you shoot that you don't, there's no negative motion, right? The ball's not going back at all. Yeah. It's, it's frozen. And then once they break, it's only up and out, Yeah. right? And the time that the elbows go from frozen to broken is the same time that your toes should go from, you know, heels off the ground to jumping. And if you teach kids to work on that timing, then I've found that that's helped them get the most strength. And, like, and, and made the shot feel the most effortless. I'm a big believer that the, the follow-through, people think that shooting is, is the wrist follow-through, right? Like, this is what they attribute shooting to. But if you look at anybody that shoots, their hand is like this when they release the ball, yeah. right? This, they're not even touching the ball,
0: right? So, so their hand is like you're giving a high five versus fingers pointing down when it's yeah.
1: yeah, so people associate it with this, but really like the skill is gonna be almost right there. Right. So, so in terms of timing, I like to focus on the elbows and kind of think of the, the wrists and the follow through as an afterthought, um, but more for alignment. Like when you finish, your fingers should be down directly on top of the shot line. I like to teach the net holder as a target. But as alignment, when you actually have those fingers down, they should be directly in line with your target. And you have to make kids make the correction if they finish and they're off, you have to bring them back to put it, because you have to em- embody the, the body mechanics. One of the worst things that coaches do is they judge a good shooting perfor- or a good shooting workout or training session by makes and misses. And if you make a shot, but you don't embody a good form or a good principle, you're lying to yourself. Like even if you <laughs> put right. ten for ten, but you're not doing it consistently, you're not better the next day. Right. Um, so you need to you have to teach kids to focus on on the process and shooting the ball straight and embodying the, that's why without a basketball it makes total sense because you have to embody the the physical body mechanics. What happens with the basketball is kind of a lie. It is the important thing, but it's not the important thing. Right. Like We want it to go in, but when you're practicing, you want to build consistency. Um, And, yeah, anyway, so to to circle back, yeah, for the young kids, I like to teach the the elbows and the toes because if you teach timing, they can, within that timing framework you give them, they can kind of, you know, tweak it a little bit to personalize it. But you need to give them a general, here's how the timing should be, but it needs to be consistent no matter what.
0: Right. Sure. Well, let me let me follow, start to wrap up here and talk about the one thing that I've been really looking at a lot, and I have no idea what the significance is: is the eyes and how, the, if you look at the some of the best shooters in for, we've ever had, a great number of them follow the ball with their eyes after the release. They don't stay locked in on the rim. Uh, I you know I've gotten into Titanic arguments with coaches and people uh, on Twitter about this, which is not the place to do it, but. Um, what are your thoughts on that and do you think that that's a a skill
1: um so i i've like you probably gone back and forth in my mind about this or maybe not but um (laughs) I, i my belief now and what i teach kids is that once the ball's out of your hands there's nothing else you can do so find your target and then once you learn the body mechanics once the ball's out of your hands it doesn't doesn't matter what you look at like I think Steph Curry. Some of these people might do it for balance. It's as you jump and you're falling through the air, it might be easier to find the target. It could be out of habit. I don't think it matters because what matters is seeing your target before you shoot the ball, and running those body mechanics, and then afterwards, do whatever you want with your eyes. Um, I, on a training note, I think it's important to, if you're practicing, that after you're done shooting, you need to look. You need to reevaluate your target and make sure that you have proper alignment, that your fingers are down, that your arms are fully extended, that you framed the basket correctly. Um, So once you understand those body mechanics, you can look at whatever you want, but making sure that you're in alignment um, is more important to me than, you know, everything, 99% of the, 99, 100% of the work making the shot is done before the ball releases your hand, or once the ball leaves your hand, right? So once the ball is out of your hand after that I don't I don't really care yeah Yeah
0: I mean it's true I can I I have a hard time ignoring the fact that like okay we've all learned I mean certainly when I was taught it was you had to keep yourself laser focused on the rim and a guy like you know JJ Redick is never takes his eyes off the rim Um, But, you know, then you look at, you know, there's so many of these great shooters that all did it. And now none of them, I bet, were taught that. That's the other thing. is No one was ever probably taught to do that. However, if they're shooting the ball at a rate that normal people don't and they are following the ball, well, then that makes me want to really look at this at the very least. But then um, I have a theory about it. I can throw it out here if you want. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. So my theory is that, you know, If you throw your, um, your focus on a target that is 30, 35 feet away, you are kind of losing the sense of the moment. You're not necessarily in the moment with what's going on with what you're talking about with the body mechanics. So something about when I know I'm going to follow the ball, because it's not the same shot. Like I defy anybody that shoots staring at the rim to start shooting following the ball. It will. It's a different shot. It just feels different. Uh, Now maybe after 2,000 of those, it doesn't feel different anymore. But there is a difference in my mind. So my thought is, is that by knowing that you're going to bring your focus up into the ball, like I become a little bit more hyper aware of hip, elbow mechanics, and all those things that are going on, and less about like what's all the way over there. And that to me might indicate or might might inform me better in the moment of what I'm doing and keep it all sort of focused here and and, and maybe maybe give you more better results
1: yeah I mean I definitely think that there could that could be a piece to it I also think that I mean Seth Curry those guys might be checking the rotation on their ball I mean just seeing if it if it if it came off their hand the right way you know um but again I I I don't put a whole lot of focus on it just because it's the ball's already out of your hands. Right.
0: And you by the way, I don't even know if it's worth teaching. It's like that's, that's the thing. It's like a kid does it, doesn't do it. Now, if I had a kid that was shooting 20% from three, it's just, it's just not happening We're working for months and months. Well, you know, maybe I'll just throw it out there, right? You never know, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I'm not even sure how comfortable I would be <laughs> in teaching that. I know some coaches will start yelling, "Oh, they're going to jerk their head up and then they're going to throw their whole body alignment off, and that's bad too." Um, although I, most of the time, when I've seen the people who do it, and it's usually natural, it's not taught. You know, their head doesn't really move; it's just it's just the eyes and maybe the slightest bit of a move of the, of the chin up, and shouldn't have any obviously it obviously doesn't have any effect because these are the best shooters we've seen. So I don't know. I I love throwing that out there to see what people think because uh, there's something there. I don't know what it is. And uh, maybe we'll never figure it out. But, uh, you know, it's worth at least, you know, mentioning for uh, for a few minutes.
1: The one thing that I love about, I mean, your channel and some of these other guys who are out there now, it's like everyone's reevaluating what they learned 10 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like even like I was raised 10 toes to the basket and it seems like a joke now. I mean, if you look at the evidence, it's like. You know, So if you look at the bell curve, who's doing the greatest things, what are they doing? It's like, well, if they're all looking at the ball, why don't we just copy them? Like, we don't, like, why does our egos need to be involved? Why do we need 10 toes to the rim? Like, they're doing it better than anybody in the world. Like, let's just copy or model of them, right? That right. seems fair.
0: Well, I mean, if we didn't reverse engineer Kenny Saylor's in 1945, we'd all be standing on the, you know, wouldn't be jumping in the air to shoot a jump shot like that's reverse engineering is what we're about for evolution. But right. The problem is, is some people grip to these things. You know, their grip might not be strong because they're not working on the wrist things you're talking about, but they grip the dogma of old school fundamentals. And uh, and all I know is when I was playing, and I was like a student of the game even back then, uh, all those things bothered me. Everything that they taught us never seemed to work or make sense to me, yet, you know, and I would see the pros not doing these things and just figure, oh, well, I guess their pros are allowed to not do what they're forcing us to do here at the high school level or younger. And, um, and it's, it is exciting that at least now there's some platforms to get this information out. So, so to, to wrap up, you know, before we, we – because we got into some shooting stuff and I know that we wanted to also focus on, you know, the strength and conditioning um, – I think what you're talking about is really important as far as being able to develop better athletes without having sophisticated weight training regimens and access to an amazing gym, right? This is sort of the key here is that you can do the Rocky Four style training and, and still beat. It's more effective. <laughs> and It's more effective yeah, it's than, more effect. you know, yeah. than, uh, I will break you, uh, the, you know, uh, technology style, right? That, that, that's the point we're trying to make here.
1: Well, yeah, so, and then the other one thing I really want people to understand, because this is, like, what really flips it on the head, is Pavel says strength training is about three things. And if I would learned these when I was in high school or younger, I would have, I mean, I look at all of the wasted energy that I had now. But he says that it's about lifting as heavy as possible, doing as much work as possible. And here's the third one that throws people off, is staying as fresh as possible. So most people, and Within that Venn diagram, there's a sweet spot that you've got to find. But people, coaches especially, or like strength training coaches, they're trying to like not inflate their own importance, but they tell you that you need to be at the gym for two hours. Um, no, if you want to get stronger, you need to follow those three things. You want to lift as heavy as possible, do as much work as possible, meaning multi-joint exercises, um, and then you want to maintain as fresh as possible. That's why he's got the rule of five. It says never do more than five reps. You want to train your nervous system. Um, the other thing that, I've got something I'm gonna do a blog post pretty quick about, it's called the video game strategy, but Pavel talks about greasing the groove. It's this Russian uh, strength training technique where you, know you rather than go to the gym and get really sweaty, you go, say you have a pull-up bar in your house, or a grip strength, that's actually the, the way that I teach my kids is they have a grip strength uh, thing. and if you can do 10 reps of your grip strength, you do five, you do less, way less than you normally could. And then you rest, you know, minimum 15 minutes fully recovered. And then again, throughout the day later, you pick up your grip strength there and you do it again. That technique over time is called greasing the groove. Um, That will get you stronger than anything else that you could possibly, than a two hour workout then. And I personally, so when I started doing this stuff, it was sort of, it's all theory, right? Um about two months ago, I passed the kettlebell snatch test, which is what you need to be strong enough to be in the secret service right it's a it's a badass test I don't say that to brag, but I say i'm ten pounds less now than I was in college like I haven't gained any muscle at all, but I'm twice as strong, and i'm working out i mean i'm in the gym for maybe twenty minutes a day, maybe um, but the principles of Hey, what what exercises can I do that are gonna make me do a lot of work, that are gonna be pretty heavy for me? And then the safety is a big factor with the younger kids, but also how can I maintain and be as fresh as possible? Um, and the greasing the groove technique, kids can bring grip strengthers to school and do it all the time. You can the video game strategy is if you're playing video games once an hour, you get up and you do a couple pistol squats or you do a super plank. Um, or you grab your grip strength there and then you go back to playing video games and most coaches would tell you that you can't get strong doing this but you can get really strong you can get you will get stronger doing this I promise you then you'll get doing a strength training right. but it's also easy it's safe there's no downside to it um,
0: do, would you get ripped as well do you get cut from doing that if it's less reps
1: you'll you'll definitely add um you'll add some hypertrophy you'll get some uh, I think that depending on how you do it, um, as an adult for adults, the super planks that I know you did some of the super planks, right? Yeah. Um, so those are like a injection of testosterone and good hormones into your system. Like people, and I've done that when you do it regularly, it's, it's better than squatting. You get more hormones, you get better. Um, and for young kids, there's a benefit to the hormones as well. All of those are going to help you get more ripped and help you look better um, and help you get more of a six-pack than, than you would if you are. It depends on what you're doing in the gym. I mean, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Right now, by the way, in the super planks, what I started doing based on your blog post was: you know, you get in the plank position and you basically just uh, tense your muscles, every muscle in your body you can, as hard as you possibly can for 10 seconds. And then you rest for, I think it's 15 or 30. What did I say?
1: For 50 seconds. Oh, yeah, 50 for- seconds. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm not even doing it right. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, it definitely is an interesting it's – it's it, it does feel like some sort of a workout, I, even though you do like three of those. I think you just told me to do three a day, right, with, with 50 yeah. seconds in between. Roll,
1: roll out of bed, do three a day. The, it turns your neurons into superconductors, and that's what strength is. It's the In my blog post, I wrote about how the first de- human to deadlift over 1,000 pounds – enthusiastically credits the super plank exercise for that feat yeah. and there's no weights involved there's no it's you creating tension in your body um, and that's like and it works It's like young kids are gonna be able to take contact and just bulldoze through it because they can maintain tension in their core which is what strength is
0: yeah and, and then balance too yeah so beautiful well uh, before I forget I want to make sure people can check you out and all of your uh, ideas at everyadvantagebasketball.com where else can we find you to get more information Uh, Leland
1: underscore Redfield on Twitter is going to be your most direct direct option and then yeah my website my email list
0: terrific well it's really good stuff and it sounds like you're going to be updating your website even more with other stuff so definitely check it out sports fans when you get a chance and um, don't forget at B-Ball Breakdown we're not a channel we're a conversation you in? are you in Leland? I am in thanks coach